Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Scott Lease to the podcast. Welcome, Scott. Thanks. Appreciate it. Happy to be here, Jeremy. Scott and I were reflecting just before we started that I feel like I know him because he's been all over my LinkedIn feed forever and ever. And I, I read his book, Addicted to Process. He's a sales leader. He's also the founder of a cool conference that we at SalesLoft send folks to, I think, every year called Surf and Sales. And he has decided to cross over from being an operator into running his own sales strategy consulting firm, Scott Lee's Consulting. We're going to talk about two topics today. I think they're both fun topics and stuff we have not covered in detail. One is uh, what Scott describes as the dirt in sales, particularly some of the truths and lies around what it's like to be a VP of sales. And then the second thing we touch on a bit is is what it's like to write a sales book. I'd love to ask you the first question I ask everyone before we just chat, which is what's your favorite sales book of all time and what did you learn from it? You know, the the, the book that really like changed my mindset, The 48 Laws of Power, I, I, I read that and I just really like drew comparisons between all these old stories and the lessons in it and how it's applicable to sales and navigating your career and all that kind of stuff. And I felt like that just really like blew my mind at the time. And I think I've read it two or three times and listened to it once. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the truths and lies and what it's like to be a a VP of sales. What do you think is the biggest lie that people are under the impression of? I think a lot of people feel like maybe being a VP of sales is the pinnacle of their, their sales career, if they're going in a leadership kind of direction. And, you know, once you're there, things are easy and, you know, you don't have to maybe sell anymore. I've literally heard people tell me it must be less stressful. You know, I don't, I don't even know what you do all day long and, you know, nothing could be farther from the truth. The stress is just entirely different and it's constant and people don't talk about it all that often. And, and there's just a lot of interweaving parts and different relationships you're trying to navigate. And, you know, you get all, all the blame for sure. And, you know, if you're fortunate, you get a lot of the praise, if, if not all of it. But it's just, it's not always all it's cracked up to be. It's a total fiction that you're no longer selling. Can you talk about what is the role that a VP of sales finds themselves on when they are called upon to sell? Well, a lot of it probably depends on the the size and stage of the company and things, you know, of that nature. But I spent the entirety of my career building everything from scratch. So oftentimes the first salesperson was me, you know, trying to figure out how do I take this product and simplify the messaging and craft a sales pitch and, you know, hit the right customer profile and, and things like that. Um, without any support, no no real tools, nobody to bounce ideas off of. That's in- incredibly difficult. You know, I, I know that there's AEs out there who do that same exact thing, but it's hard as as a VP of sales if you spent the last three or four years not on the phone, right? So you got to shake a little bit of of rust off. Now I'm selling all the time, right? I'm helping reps close deals, whether that's 
you know, sometimes jumping on the phones with them and manage, and managing the, the sales funnel. I'm selling people on the opportunity, recruiting, for example, nonstop selling the company, the role, the opportunity for growth. I'm selling internally. Why do I need a particular sales tool? Why do I need more than one sales tool? Why do I need more headcount? Why do I need more reps? Why do I need a sales manager? One way or another, I'm selling all day long in, in a number of different ways. It's a huge fallacy that you, know, you kind of stop selling once you get to you know, BP level. I love that you brought up the internal sales piece. I'm curious how you approach selling your CFO or CEO on the, the less tangible things that, that, for example, sales enablement or another sales ops headcount? How, how do you build the, the business case for those less tangible roles? Well, f- first you, have, you oftentimes have to explain to these folks what the heck that role even means. If you are working in an environment where your founding team are engineers or product folks or you know, finance, kind of, they probably don't know a whole heck of a lot about sales and the sales process, and they might not even have ever heard of sales enablement. If you're listening right now and you're having a hard time believing that, I have news for you. I talk to people all the time and I'm trying to explain this stuff too. And I've been in the trenches and had to explain why I need help in, in, in enablement and operations. The education component is kind of where I start. What exactly will this person do? Why is it important? Why are they, you know, either more skilled or better suited at performing these particular functions? What will it free up for me in terms of time? What will I be able to get done? How will it improve uh, not just my performance, but the performance of my SDRs or my reps or my sales managers or all of the above? What will they cost? And then what the, what's the growth of that function or that team or, you know, that department, how, how large will that sales operations um, group grow? And, and when are those triggers when we might need more? I'm, I, you have to explain all of this stuff, in, in my experience, explain all of this stuff before you can even get the time of day and consideration to make such a hire. Yeah, actually, I want to reflect on you. You, know, you talked about sort of being early, early sales um, hire and really developing the motion. So, I mean, take your last gig over running sales at, at Qualia. When you joined, how many salespeople were there or were you the first one? Yeah, there, there was three account executives when I got there. However, they hadn't closed any deals yet. They had got there a couple months before me and there was really no traction whatsoever. And so, you know, my first goal in getting there was to, you know, after understanding the product and whatnot, I was like, how do, how do we, how are we going to sell this? Right. And what are they doing right now? Cause that's not working. I got to find a simpler way to do this, a more structured way, a more methodical way. And then I got to get their buy-in to kind of operate this particular way. Well, the only, the only way, you know, in my mind to do that is to kind of figure it out and, and, and do it yourself and help them you know, on their calls and, and get some wins. And then once the wins show up, then the buy-in and the belief is there. And then, you know, people are more willing to kind of trust you and do, and do what you say. And so that, that's how, how we went about it. Why did the company take the leap of faith to hire three AEs before it sounds like they even really had a sales motion in place? 
a repeatable scale sales motion? Well, I mean, I, I don't fully know how to answer that for them. I, I will say that it's not uncommon in my experience for a couple AEs to be in place prior to there being a you know senior level um, sales leader. I think a lot of times founders think that their product is you know spectacular and is going to sell itself on some level, and you just need people to make some calls and show people the product. I, I think I think a lot of us get very enamored and fall in love with our product and what it's capable of and what it does, and and forget that you know, the rest of the world might not agree. And it's not as simple as it, uh, as it seems or as it sounds. There's an art to getting people to see the value in, in the problems that you solve and the value that uh, it creates and, and the solution that, that you're offering. As you worked with those initial three AEs and, and scaled the team, what were some of the breakthroughs that you found in the sales motion that maybe are are repeatable by by others that you'd want to share? Well, I think the first thing is you got to simplify your explanation. You, my experience tells me that in the beginning, you know, the the head of product and the and, and the founding team, you know, they've been in the weeds so much with the product that they want to explain every single little thing that it does. And prospects don't care about all that stuff. The, you know, the story and the analogy I use all the time is when I go buy a car, when I go out onto the lot, I'm not a car person. Okay. All I care about is like the color, the gas mileage, like how many, how much room it has, right? Like very, very simple. So if I show up on the car lot and you start talking to me about the accelerating speed and the size of the engine and the brake time and all this, like, I don't freaking care, man. And you are just absolutely overwhelming and confusing me. And you're going to turn me off. I'm not going to want anything to, to do with you. And I, and I think that founding teams often forget that. So my experience is the first thing I have to do is try to simplify the messaging, right? Yes, I know it can do these 5,000 things. What are the three or four that really matter? You, you only get to pick three or four. And let's focus on those and craft our narrative. That for me is, is really the first breakthrough, right? And the next breakthrough is, you know, getting your first couple customers and, you know, nailing down, like, what are people going to pay for this and kind of locking in a, a pricing structure and a, and a pricing strategy. Is our process now going to make these deals replicable? Can we do this at scale if we just keep repeating this? So by the time I've got to like 10, 20, 30 deals, with a couple different people closing, including myself, I'm starting to think to myself, we're ready to go. It's time to go from like three to like 10, 15 people. And that's, you know, kind of the second milestone, right? So now I get to like 15, you know, people or so. Now, if I can really coach and train this crop of folks on our process, and after, you know, 90 days or 60 days or whatever the sales cycle is, right? If I can start to see some results from that group of people, I know I'm really onto something and, you know, the sky's the limit, so to speak, right? Those are the first three kind of milestones, I guess, if you will, that I'm, I'd be looking for as we scale. I love that you think in threes. I, I also think in threes. I, I did want to, on the last one, going from the three to 15. So at that point, you're 
you're going to need, you know, one or depending on your span of control, a couple of a couple of sales managers. I say two or three, probably two. Yeah, I think probably probably one if we're being realistic in terms of what you're able to get budget wise at that early of a company. And for that first line sales manager, do you have a experiences or preference for whether you promote one of your AEs into that role versus hiring from the outside? I mean, my preference would be that I bring somebody in who is that frontline manager, but I start them on the phones kind of doing the role as an AE and trust that they are superior in their experience and skill set and get off to, you know, a really good start and kind of prove their mettle, so to speak, and then have them transition out of the direct selling role and more into a full-blown sales manager role. That's a killer tip. I mean, how long do you keep them in the sales role before you take them out of probation? Until they nail it, you know, until, they, until they've got it figured out. They've got to close a few deals. They've got to earn the respect and trust, not just of me, but of everybody on the floor, right? You're, you're being hired. I'll hire you and pay you as a sales manager or a director of sales, you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever your, whatever your value is. But you're going to do the role of an AE at first. I need you to become the best salesperson in the whole company, better than me, at selling this particular product. You're going to end up being the one who's on the front lines all day long, digging in on these calls and, and teaching and coaching and training reps. Because I know in time, I'm going to slowly get further and further removed from my ability to be able to do that. So the best training that you can get is to do the actual job. Whether that takes three weeks or three months or whatever, I don't really care. You know, but you've got to figure it out. Now, if they don't figure it out, then I've 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 made a bad hire, and I got egg on my face, and I'm going to have to you know make a change. Fortunately for me, I haven't had that experience yet. Knock on wood. We might have time for one more like truth or lie in in the VP of Sales world before we do transition over to the second topic of chatting about what it's like to write a book in general, but specifically a sales book. Any other truths or lies you want to share before we do that? You really have got to pay attention to who you're going to work for and what the product is, because not not everything is as not everything is sellable. It's just not. You know, if the product is no good or the product doesn't work, I'm not going to be able to sell it. If if I'm promised all these leads from the marketing team and the leads don't show up, how am I going to be able to sell it? You know, if I close deals. And all of a sudden, the product is buggy all over the place. And that word of mouth gets out and spreads around. That's going to do damage, sometimes irreparable harm to my ability to grow the organization and to close more deals. If our customer services is slow to respond and not good, how am I supposed to over, overcome that? Sales leaders are so trained you know, to be like extreme ownership and full accountability. And it's just like, we're a hero, right? It's all on us. But, you know, sometimes it's, the odds are just stacked too much against us. So I think we should all do a little bit better job picking the right horse, so to speak. How do you do that, right? So let's say that someone's either going to take a, a sales, an AE job, and they want to vet that, or especially a sales leadership job. Like, what, what, what do you actually do when you're vetting the viability of the product idea, the the marketing lead gen, like these are things that are really hard to do from the outside. How do, how do you vet that? I can tell you it's really difficult, you know, especially if you're doing the early stage. Like when, when I went to Qualia, we didn't have marketing. 
There was no head of marketing. I couldn't assess that whatsoever. I could assess the the pain that the product is solving and the need in the market and how antiquated the market is. Like how big of a leap forward is this particular product for its industry? How big of an advantage do I think I'm going to have over all the competitors? I can talk to the head of product and engineering, like what is the release cycle, right? And I can use the product a little bit, you know, as, as I'm vetting, if I you know, want them to demo it for me, I ask, you know, questions, I try to get them, you know, show me how to do this, show me how to do that. And, and you just do your best to make sure that the product is, is working well. If they do have some customers, you know, find out how happy they are. What are they seeing? How fast do they get onboarded? You know, how many tickets are they, are they writing? Obviously, you know, if, if there's enough customers that there's churn of some kind, you know, really figure out what the churn is, right? It doesn't matter how much we sell if customers are leaving just as fast as they're going. That's, you know, I didn't think about these things 15 years ago when I, when I first got into sales and started taking um, on these roles. And, and I, you know, I wouldn't go through a single interview without asking some of these questions now. You know, I, I read and tremendously enjoyed your book, Addicted to the Process. I got the subtitle in front of me, which is how to close transactional sales with confidence and consistency. Uh, I know you're working on on book two. Uh, I wrote a, written a couple myself, but I'd love to understand kind of how you how you approach the writing process and and what that's like for you. Well, it's still a new process for me, right? Like I've I've written one book and, and I'm in the process of writing a second one, and so. You know, I, I would hardly consider myself like a huge authority on the on the subject. But for me, the the important thing was, you know, how do I tell my story in, in a way that cuts through some of the noise? You know, and, and and do I have anything different to say? And you know, with book number one, I, I really felt like I did. You know, I, I have a well documented, you know. Uh, kind of weird way that I got into sales and through illness and all this kind of thing. And um, I felt like nobody had had really talked about how that can be a trigger in a positive way to get you into sales and, and to tee you up for success. I also felt like there's tons of books that get uh, written and have been written about enterprise sales in particular. In the transactional sales world, I felt like was disrespected. Nobody was kind of targeting that audience and people who are just getting started in sales. That was an audience that I wanted to speak to. I wasn't at the time trying to speak to people who had 15, 20 years of experience. So, you know, I I felt like I had a few things to say that were different. I went through my experience and and created what I felt was a, a clean and simple way to talk about how to sell. It's the addiction model of selling, you know, find pain, build value, create urgency, discuss solution. And, you know, I thought that that would resonate with people. A lot of people end up in sales who've, you know, been through the ringer more than once and have had issues and so forth. And so it it was, how do I find something unique to say in a way that might uh, resonate with folks? And that's very personal to me. And that's not like academia. You know, I didn't want to write something that's like, you know, a textbook that you would find in high school or something like that, right? I didn't want it to be that way. I wanted to talk about some different things. And as I continue on, you know, with this second book, 
you know, how, how I hit upon the topic that I'm going to be writing about is what are some things that people should know that nobody else is talking about? And so that's kind of, you know, my focus. How can I shed some light on some things and some subjects that I think are important that for whatever reason, nobody's talking about right now? I'll talk to people who want to write books and they, and they have a really hard time pinning down who the audience is. They, they want, they basically say, this is a book for everybody in sales, right? And, you know, it's, if you write a book for everybody, you're writing a book for nobody. Uh, you have to imagine who that audience is. And in, in your case of that other book, you know, it sounds like the audience was, you know, people getting started in sales. And it sounds like you're going the other way for this, for the new book, right? Which is um, people who have some experience in sales, but are, are thinking about their journey to, to VP or SVP of sales. Yeah. You know, the, just to kind of drop a little bit of what it's about is I'm trying to kind of talk about a playbook, if you will. And, and how do you, how do you get to become a VP of sales and what are the things you need to get good at and be able to do? And then what is the job really like? What is the good and the bad and the ugly? People don't talk about these things very often. I think a lot of times because they're scared of the repercussions. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the, the kind of environment out there. Like why are VP of sales losing their job every 16 to 18 months? Right. I don't see product folks who miss targets or engineers who miss targets or marketing folks who miss targets losing their job that fast. If they are losing their job, it's certainly not talked about uh, the same way sales leaders are. So, you know, I'm going to dive into this kind of stuff because I, I think it's important. And I, and I don't think there's a voice or enough voices out there talking about these things and, and giving people advice who are looking to go this particular direction and really validating the feelings of people who are in these roles right now. Yeah, you do see that stat that the average VP of sales lasts about 22 months, I think, but you don't necessarily see the why. What do you, what do you think the, the big, re is it just a scapegoat factor or what do you think is the reason for it? Yeah, it's, it's we're the easiest people to measure, right? Easiest thing to point the finger at. I, I think sometimes we are more expensive or one of the more expensive hires. So there's some cost saving elements to it. Uh, I, but, you know, I, I just think it's, it's pretty easy, easy to blame, you know? Yeah, you definitely you stick out like a sore thumb in that, in that role for sure. And it's not guaranteed that another person is going to come in and just fix it. <laughs> Look, you and I have been in the game a long time. I, I bet we can point to multiple companies who make a change in the head of sales and all of a sudden they've gone through two, three, four inside of a year or two, right? Trying to find the next person to take them to wherever they're trying to go next. And sometimes they don't, they don't make it. Yeah. It was, it was never the, it was never the sales leader to begin with in those instances. I mean, they might've been a part of the problem, but certainly not all of the problem. And, and one last question on the book side, uh, I guess the other how to is, I guess really tactically, I don't know if you have kids or not, uh, but how do you find time to write and how do you approach that? I do have kids. I've got a 10-year-old and a soon-to-be 12-year-old. And now that I work from home, it's, it's been a big adjustment for me in the last six weeks. You know, I was just had lunch with a friend today and I was like, you know, my kids don't leave for school until eight o'clock and they're home at three o'clock. I got dishes and laundry and dogs to walk. It's just like, you know, I, I got a lot less hours in the day suddenly, I feel like. You know, and people don't talk about that. It feels like to me, like people are always championing, oh, I'm laser focused when I work from home now. It's like, okay, well, are we 27 and single and have no kids and no pets? You know what I mean? I got different, I got a different life going on than you. 
And so it, it is very difficult to to juggle all of these things. You know, I've I've got my consulting business I'm juggling, my surf and sales business I'm juggling. I'm trying to find time to write this book and I've got a couple other projects I'm working on. So you got to be disciplined, you know. So for me, um, my methodology is I block out a chunk of time on a particular day and that's when I'm working on the book. And, you know, rather than trying to do a little bit every single day or, you know, crank it all out in the span of a week and work on nothing else. No, for me, my method is every Wednesday, you know, from one to three, I'm going to, you know, try to get a little bit done. Right. And so that, that's the, that's the rhythm that worked for me in the past and, and kind of what I'm, what I'm trying to replicate now, but it, it, it it's difficult to find the time, but you know, you gotta, you gotta prioritize it if it's something that you really want to do. I wanted to leave you with a chance to let folks know how, how to, you know, find out more about you, find out more about your books, about the, uh, the business that you got going now. Yeah, you know, uh, my my first book, Addicted to the Process, is available on Amazon, in audio, Kindle, and paperback. My Surf and Sales Conference, Surf and Sales Summit, you can find us at surfandsales.com. We're holding our fourth event, and it's uh, February 24th to 28th. This time will be in Costa Rica. We've got a couple more planned in 2020, one of them in Nicaragua and two of them in Mexico. So we're really starting to, to grow that business. And, you know, my regular main job, if you will, is scottleaseconsulting.com. Like I said earlier, I think I kind of specialize in working with companies going from zero to 25 million ARR and working with founders and heads of sales and setting them up with sales strategy and sales process and messaging and recruiting and all these, these kind of things. So it's very uh, tactical as opposed to, you know, kind of sales trainer to the stars type type thing. That's not really my focus. And, uh, you know, I'm all over LinkedIn, which is how, you know, Jeremy really knows me. So connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message. You know, I, I try to respond to, to everybody that sends me a note. And I'm um, you know, happy to talk to folks and see if I can be helpful. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.